0: Hello and welcome back to the Run the Day podcast. I'm your host, Nick Simmons, and of course with me is Camilla LaPrey. Hey guys. Cam, how you doing?
1: I'm doing good. It's a fun Tuesday here at Run Gum HQ.
0: And Tuesday means it's what kind of day for you?
1: We are doing some podcasts today. That's right. Creative so, day.
0: So Cam and myself and the whole Run Gum team, we've started batching our days, and each day has a unique focus. We call it block scheduling. And if you ever feel that you could find more time throughout your days and weeks, that's exactly where I was. And once I started block scheduling, it really increased my productivity and it's worked for all of our team members at RunGum. You can find our free downloadable PDF to teach you about block scheduling at rungum.com schedule. A guy who obviously didn't have any trouble managing his time is Chris Dickerson. He's a former MLB player, played several seasons with several teams. Um, he's also the co-founder of Players for the Planet. And this guy, is, he's just a real renaissance guy. He played so many sports growing up and ultimately had to make that really tough decision of which sport am I gonna focus on? It must've been a, a unique problem that he had being so overwhelmingly talented in many sports. Cam, what did you think of this interview?
1: Wow, I was just blown away by Chris and you know his dedication to sport and then also his dedication to change the world, to change the planet. It's so crazy that he was literally sitting at his computer working on players for the planet when he got called up to the MLB, you know, it just shows that he's constantly doing things that are motivating him and changing the world and inspiring others. And there he is, just getting pulled up, so yeah, and
0: I, I, we didn't meant get into this too deeply in a conversation, but I had read that he would be sitting in the dugout and just looking around him during games and seeing just how much waste there was, plastic mm-hmm. bottles and you know, rappers and just so much waste left and right. And that inspired him to create this Players for the Planet, co-founded it with a few friends. And they're really aspiring to make it what they call a net zero playing field, meaning that all the trash that's generated is ultimately recycled or you just in some way to give back to the planet. And I just find it so incredible that, you know, here's a guy at the very, very upper echelons of sport. And this is what he's passionate about while he's playing is how do we make sure that we leave this planet you know better for generations after us? I admire, him as an athlete and I admire him as an environmental activist. And I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this one.
1: I do too. I'm so excited for them to listen and hear how they can make change and join Chris, you know, in helping the environment.
0: All right, well, let's get to it. Without further ado, here is Chris Dickerson. All right, with us today from El Segundo, California, it's Chris Dickerson. Chris, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I had a brief uh, battle with the traffic today trying to drop my car off and i know know, how it goes
0: down there i live down in santa monica for a winter and it it's the traffic broke me i don't know how you guys down in southern california do it
2: it's crazy and i was just commenting to somebody the other day that even as a you know a native Angelino, i'm embarrassed i'm personally embarrassed the amount of traffic that we have these days is at times it's it's unbearable the weekend traffic would be gridlock traffic in any other city yeah
0: Got to get Elon to dig some more tunnels, I guess.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I, man, I'm all for that. We, the wor- we have the worst public transportation in the country.
0: And you grew up down there in Hollywood, right?
2: I was born in Hollywood, but I grew up in the San Fernando Valley.
0: Okay. What was it like growing up down there?
2: You know, I think it was pretty normal. I think we're on, you know, just on the the other side of, of where all the, the, you know, the madness happens in, in mm-hmm. West Hollywood and, you know, Hollywood and Bel Air and all that stuff. So, you know, it was pretty quiet. It's pretty quiet over there. And I think that's where... I've discovered you know, most of my friends, when you get out of college, you come back, you get a job, you know, you move over to the other side of the hill and then eventually you have a family and you, mm-hmm. you know, you go back to the valley because it's more, that's just how it is. It's more of a, it's a family type of atmosphere where it's away from all, all the madness and.
0: A little quieter, allow you to, uh, to have that nuclear family and play sports. And you played quite a few sports growing up, didn't you?
2: Oh yeah. I played them all. <laughs> I, pl- I played them all. What was your um,
0: favorite when you, when you first started out, when you were in middle school, you know, what would you really drew you to it? Was it basketball or track or football? Dude, it
2: was, I'm still was and forever will be a soccer guy. Oh, really? I, I'm sitting here. Yeah. I got the champions league match on right now. This and, coming from uh, a pro
0: baseball player.
2: Yeah, but I like to explain to people that <laughs> that baseball basically won by default. I was a soccer and a football player. The first sport that I ever played was soccer. It was my best sport all the way throughout high school. And then it just got to a point where you look at the dynamic of soccer in the United States and, you know, there's not a whole lot of room for upward mobility, you know, if you're talking about, you know, really pursuing a professional career. So I shut down when I was 16 and decided I'd focus on other sports. But
0: And I was reading an injury also played part of that. Was it a football injury or something encouraged yeah, you to no, focus on a, to no. baseball?
2: Yeah, well, it's actually funny that we're talking about playing multiple sports. I played so many sports that my base, my knees could not handle it. Yeah. <laughs> Happens to I a have, lot of kids uh, had, these days. Yeah. And that's the thing is I, you know, had a condition, you know, when you're growing and you're taking that amount of force on a daily basis and you're going from soccer practice to basketball and then you're flipping around two months later and then it's time for football you know, no, football season. So it's this constant rotation. So when you're growing and that type of strenuous activity, isn't always, you know, the greatest thing. And so I started having knee trouble as a kid. And that was kind of something that I had to battle with. I mean, even to the point where I mean, I was probably 12 or 13. I had to, the, my orthopedic recommended that I take a season off of soccer. Wow. And that's when I picked up hockey.
0: <laughs> ice hockey? <laughs> yeah. Really? Wow. You I, really
2: did play everything. Yeah. And then I played that for a couple of years and I love playing ice hockey. It's
0: a fast game. Isn't that incredible, though? A 12-year-old with an orthopedic surgeon. I remember my first sports injury ever was a metatarsal stress fracture. And what you were saying kind of reminds me of the summers. I would go straight from cross-country practice, where we'd run 4, 5, 10 to 10 miles, straight to Oof. soccer practice, where you know a midfielder might run anywhere from 5 to 6 miles. And no surprise, my poor 14-year-old body broke down. It's incredible what we, we ask of our kids these days to be great at sports.
2: Yeah, and that's, I think, really looking at the scope of what's happening in youth sports. I think it's tragic what's happening. I personally, I attribute it to the pressures of mounting tuition. Chasing my scholarship. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at some of these tuitions, they're outrageous. I mean, USC right now is like $72,000. And that's private,
0: right? So even in state, yeah,
2: yeah, that's a private school. So even if you're going to a public university, I mean, this stuff is they're backbreaking financial burdens for some of these families. So they, if they're going to be involved in sports, I think there's a lot more pressure. And when you have this dynamic, you don't want your kid to be kind of underdeveloped when four or five of his buddies are taking private lessons with a hitting coach and they're doing personal training and they're doing off season agility training. You know, they're paying hundreds of dollars for these special classes. And so even, and then that financial burden starts to rack up. And I think that's what's happening with youth baseball right now is that even now, it's not even just an inner city issue as far as urban youths getting pushed out of baseball, but it's starting to become, you know, middle to working class families that are struggling with the men costs of youth baseball.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, if it's $72,000 a year price tag, you kind of look at it as an investment almost, you know, if you invest yeah. enough in youth sports today, maybe you can def- not have to pay that $250,000 price tag. Was that you growing up? Were you thinking to yourself, you know, I want to go to college and I want to do it on an athletic scholarship?
2: No, I don't know about college, but I do know for a fact that I, in my seventh grade yearbook, I said, we'll be a professional athlete.
0: <laughs> I love it. You got to dream it before you can do it, right?
2: Yeah. My, you know, Pinecrest Woodland Hill, seventh of eighth grade graduation book or whatever it was said, you know, wants to be a professional athlete. And if I um, went back
0: in time and asked that young Chris Dickerson, what sport you're most likely to go pro in, what do you think he would have told me?
2: I would have said football. Really? Yeah. 100%. It's It's crazy. That's the only, I feel like that's the only sport that I'll ever brag about being good at. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And was it just that your body didn't hold up to that sport or what, how did you ultimately transition, you know, into pro baseball?
2: So, you know what the crazy thing is, is that what's very hard is eventually you're going to have to make a lot of tough decisions. And for me, it was tough when I had my first surgery, you know, I knew that given the condition that I had would only be accelerated by playing basketball and football. So I had to look for uh, lower impact sports that would, you know, would create some longevity in my athletic career. And then when I had my first major surgery, when I was 17 years old, the doctor basically said, it's like any other point in your life where you may have had this procedure that you would be more than likely would not ever play competitive sports again. And so I was crushed and I knew that I had a huge challenge you know, at 17 years old, I felt like five or six years that I'd physically be unable to pursue my dream as a, you know, as an athlete. And ultimately we even risk, you know, all the progress that I've made on the college side, as far as getting recruited. And at that point I was starting to receive letters from professional scouts. So it was devastating. So I knew that my going back and playing football would not have been the ideal decision, even though I did try to come back and Cause I loved it so much. And I came back one summer and did the summer session and did all you know, the passing scrimmages and I killed it. But ultimately my knees started to swell up. It was just, it was just too much. And I was like, you know, I'm going to have to bow out of this as much fun as this is. And as well as I'm doing, I'm going to have to bow out. That was the last time our high school football head, high school football coach <laughs> talked to me until I graduated. I believe it. I believe <laughs>
0: it. And then you really threw yourself into baseball at that point.
2: Yeah. My best friend. In high school, was he was like the LeBron James of baseball. He was like one of those phen- like one of those phenoms. You know, he was far more developed on the baseball side than anybody else. But also, his work ethics was evident of where his level of play was. And he was a freshman starting on varsity. And we have a very rich tradition of baseball at Notre Dame, so it's an impressive feat. His dad was a scout for the Astros. And so he had the whole, the tee and the, the net in the back. And so he was taking swings with like a broom and doing his <laughs> forearm, you know, his forearm exercises. Yeah. So, but being around that, that's kind of what it takes is that type, that level of dedication to your craft. And that's, and then ultimately that's where I picked it up. And it was only later till, you know, like 10 years down the road is that when you do have that type of dedication on the downside is that you are, you know, these kids often get burnt out. Right, and I think Matt was an early kind of an early generational example of what's happening today is that these kids are becoming specialized into one sport, and you know and ultimately they get quickly. pushed, yeah, burning out so quick, and either they're blowing out an arm from pitching year round, or they're just they're just flat out burnout from playing baseball year round and going from team to team and going to club and going to you know showcases and then playing high school and. Yeah, it's crazy, man. It's really interesting that you
0: mentioned that that's something that happens in baseball as well. I see it across so many sports and, and in running, we've kind of noticed that you really get 10 great years, 10 years to train like a pro. And, you know, And sometimes those kids start that clock at 14 and they peter out at 24. And then occasionally you'll see an athlete that, that really comes into their prime at, at 22 and will race till they're 32. But more often than not, it seems that the average lifespan of an athlete at that level is a you know 10 years, give or take.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you give up so and at that level where these kids are doing it, and I have just listened to uh, one of the podcasts with the hurdler Allen. Yeah, Devin Allen. Devin Allen. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: from uh, from I think it was episode four. And isn't Devin a great interview man? He just is awesome. Such an athlete. So
2: great. Yeah. So great. Yeah, that's my type of dude right there. He was just like you know football. You know, I kind of want to. You know, see what I want to do, but multi-sport, and yeah. that's what you know. I think he's kind of one of the the few left in this kind of generation. And I know that the big thing you uh, so often hear with college coaches these days, you know, guys like amidst the you know controversy the Urban Meyer controversy, but these huge college coaches they want multi-sport guys. They want yeah. guys like Allen that you know that have developed other traits and characteristics on you know from an athletic standpoint on in different disciplines. So, that was a really fun interview, but he had mentioned like when he's in high school, he's going to these Nike camps and these are kids that are 15, 16 years old and they're at such a level to where they this is takes up so much of their life and this is a very important development phase as far as just being a kid and being a normal teenager that's very, you know, that's so important to the development of a young kid, but much of that is spent by yourself with coaches kind of uh, pursuing this. It's not even a career. It's just, you know, this passion, I guess.
0: Yeah. In that interview with Devin, he talks about that tough decision he had to make between track and field and football. He was a 21-year-old man at that point and weighing some serious coin between two pro contracts. How did you make that decision at such a young age And do you see it difficult for a teenager, you know, a 14, 15, 16 year old athlete to try to weigh those options? It must be really stressful to be that good at so many different things. I didn't have to worry about it. I was bad at everything except running. So I just ran.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. First of all, let's, you know, the kids that are listening, it's not a bad thing. I mean, you clearly, when you get into that, when you have to make that decision, you're clearly very blessed, you know, physically to have to make this decision. I think it's a good problem to have, right? it's a great problem to have. I think when it comes down to it, it's not so much, well, what can I make the most money in? What am I going to have the best chance at? Because nobody knows if you're going to have the best chance. It's what are you most passionate about? When you look at each individual sport and you look at what it takes to be in a, a truly exceptional athlete, what sport do you see yourself doing that in? And what are, you know, if you're looking to go into football, what are the consequences, the physical toll and the consequences that can happen? Do you have a safer option? You know, do you really believe in yourself and your ability in that particular sport that you can perform at the highest level? And then number two, do you think you really enjoy it enough to where you can put in the hours, the extra hours when nobody's looking to become great, even though you may think you have some deficiencies now? So it's one of those things. And that's what I kind of thought when I made the decision to quit soccer is where do I see myself doing. And this was like 1998 when soccer was still not very cool in the United States. And so, you know, it was just one of those things where I, you know, I feel like I have a real opportunity to play baseball and I have some guys around me that I know that I can get better around me.
0: And an underlying passion to get those hours in to be great at it.
2: Yeah, you really do. I mean, you have to have, I mean, you have to like, when you dedicate yourself to a sport, you have to eat, drink and, you know, live it every day. So, I think that's just a conversation you have to have with yourself that no, essentially nobody else can make the decision for you. It's got to be something that you are prepared to make. Yeah.
0: All right. We'll be right back for the conclusion of this interview, but first a word from our sponsor.
1: Special. Thank you to run gum. Run gum is an energy gum designed to help people make the most of their busy days created by a two time Olympian run gum provides an immediate boost in energy and focus when you need it most helping people run the day since 2014 learn more and start your trial at rungum.com
0: staying on the topic of tough decisions you were actually drafted by the Yankees in the 2000 draft were you a senior in high school at that time or
2: yeah yeah. yeah i was senior in high school i graduated we graduated in the morning mm-hmm. and then we played our state championship game at Dodger Stadium That afternoon. And then right after the game is when I got drafted.
0: Incredible. Um, What's that like as an 18 year old getting drafted by the Yankees?
2: You know, I think I was so set on going to school. Mm -hmm. And and you had committed to
0: University of Nevada at that time?
2: Yeah, I had committed, but oftentimes, you know, everybody commits at some, at some point, you know, whether it's verbal. I mean, these kids now are committing at 13, 14 years old. And then, you know, if they progress how they should be, you know, they're going first round. And so college that goes out the window, but for me, I was so set on going to college. I physically and mentally knew that I wasn't ready for the professional game at the time. And it was already the second day. So we had a clear cut idea of, okay, if I get drafted in the first 10 rounds, then maybe we'll talk. But anything after that, if the number's not right, then we're going to school. But oftentimes, you know, it was only until later that you find out with an organization like the Yankees, you know, they'll often pay extra, especially for a high school kid. They'll pay a lot of money, even though you're a late rounder to kind of buy you away, to tempt you away from college. But, you know, it wasn't something that we we're thinking about and it's to that complexity. But, you know, i feel like I made the right decision 100% because when I went to school, I turned into a completely different student, number one. And just the whole college experience was tremendous, was a tremendous thing for me. And kind of growing as a person in college and growing as a player in college was highly beneficial. And so who knows where that would have gone if I would have signed at 18 years old and been on my own in the the Gulf Coast League in Florida (laughs) and 175 degree heat. So
0: Oh, no. Yeah, a lot of times I talk to athletes and you know people from other walks of life, and it seems so often that people view college as a bit of an incubator. I know I certainly did. I had no idea what I wanted to do, and it was a great place for me to develop a lot of different skills, like time management, and pursue a couple different courses of interest, and try different sports even. And and ultimately, it was a great incubator for me, and it allowed me to mature enough to become a professional athlete. You are were obviously developing your talents as a baseball player at University of Nevada, and. You know, you you were then drafted in 2003, I believe, was it by the Cincinnati Reds? And so Mm -hmm. you made your MLB debut in the 2008 season. Tell me what happened during those five years. I don't, you know, forgive my naivety about some of the minor league baseball, but how does that work? And what was life like for you after college?
2: Man, it is such
0: grind. (laughs) That's what I've heard from a few people.
2: I just think that minor league baseball life is just the. It's just such a gnarly experience at some, at times. And, How many games you know, a season
0: are you guys playing?
2: It's, you're still playing 144 that games. That is insane to me. And this is 144 games that are in cities that you've never heard of. And you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're on a bus, you know, especially in like a ball, you're not you're bunked up, but you're partnered up with somebody on the bus. So you're riding doubled up for 10, 12 hours. And so you become very crafty with your sleeping, <laughs> your sleeping apparatuses, you know, whether that's going to Michael's or not Michael's Leslie's pool shop and getting uh, pool floaties that fit in between really? the seats or the, either the inflatables or the rubber cushions and yeah. laying that down. But yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you like,
0: work your butt off for an entire decade. And you find yourself on a bus with a bunch of other dudes sleeping on pool floaties. Is that like kind of depressing? Like I'd made all these sacrifices and this is pro baseball? Question mark. You know, what's going through your head at
2: that time? Yeah. And oh, not to mention you're you're making minimum wage. Well, actually, technically, what less, you know, less you all now hours. Is, yeah. Yeah. They have this whole civil suit against minor league baseball or as major league baseball with, you know, terms that minor league baseball players are being paid below minimum wage, which they are. Because, I mean, my first year in A-ball, when I got drafted, I left to Billings, Montana in June, and we were making like $1,200 a month. Wow. And you're playing every day. You probably have a day off maybe once every two weeks. And, you know, you're going to Ogden, Utah, which is a 15-hour drive, you know, 15-hour bus ride. And then you're going to, let's say, Provo, Utah, and then working your way all the way back to Billings. So. It's taxing to say the least. Getting in at, at sometimes nine o'clock in the morning and then having a seven o'clock game. So you
0: definitely put your time in. I mean, there were about five seasons, as I'm, if I'm doing my math right, before you made your major league debut. What was yeah. it like when you took the field in that first MLB game? Was it just a feeling of absolute elation after you know almost two decades worth of work to get there? What did it feel
2: like? Yeah. I mean, the call, you know, it wasn't even a call. It was, I was on my computer actually working, doing research for players for the planet or at the time, it wasn't actually at the time I hadn't even started it yet, but I was just crying. I was just, I was on the computer because I think this is after I had started the reusable water bottle initiative in the locker room. And I was on my computer and the coach comes in and and he was like, Dickie, get off your goddamn computer, go pack. You're going to Pittsburgh. I'm like, Oh my God. So, you know, I've Went home and you're just like walking on air. You know, you go call a million people and you're walking on air. Go back and pack and you hop on a plane. You know, fly into Pittsburgh and you spend the night. You don't sleep at all. And then you know, you wake up. Oh yeah, way too amped. And I'm trying to remember. I don't honestly. I can't even remember. So everything happened so fast. I can't even remember if I played that night or I did go to sleep at the hotel and then show up to the ballpark the next day. But I remember my first at bat. I was so nervous. My foot was shaking uncontrollably. And I had to, I had to step out of the box, like in between pitches. I, you know, I, like but I, yeah I, had to, yeah, I said something was in my eye and I walked around for a bit and Ryan Dumit, who was catching, he was like, he was like, Hey, you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. But my back leg was sh- shaking uncontrollably. So wow. it was, yeah, it was incredible.
0: Well, you obviously learned to control those nerves and, and channel those emotions because you went on to have a batting average of two fifty seven And you played for, what, I, at least five teams, as I recall. Was it the Reds, yeah. the Brewers, the Yankees, the Orioles, and the Indians over five seasons?
2: Over Six eight seasons? seasons.
0: Eight seasons. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, this is an incredible career. And as of now, are you retired? Are you, you still playing at all? No, not playing at all. No, those days, days are are behind, those days are behind
2: me. Yeah, yeah, I had knee surgery in October. I tore my meniscus last year on my bad knee and I, I knew that that was it was time that to was shut it. it down. And yeah. I had previously made a comeback after I had shoulder surgery and I basically told my team that year that thanks for the memories, good luck to everybody, but this is it for me. And I ended up getting a call to come back to Baltimore in the summer of 16 and I came back and I kind of started my started my career all over again and but ultimately that many games as you age, it's so hard. It's so, so difficult. I honestly think it's the most demanding sport. And I know that's, you know, a point of argument for a lot of people, but just to do that 162 days with spring training, two months of spring training and another 30 games, the travel, but to be able to perform every night at the peak of your abilities on a consistent basis and not, you know, at that level, I commend those dudes that are still doing that and that have done it for 15 plus years. So
0: It's impressive for sure. But you'd mentioned that when you got that call, you were working on your computer and you were kind of hatching out the initial concept for Players for the Planet. Tell us a little bit more about this and how you got involved with environmentalism and just, you know, fighting for our oceans.
2: You know, it started growing up in Southern California, as we discussed earlier. I feel like it's just we have our issues, and Southern California, of course, is known for, you know, natural disasters and and all else whether it be fires or earthquakes or you know ocean pollution whatever but i think Growing up here ultimately is what did it for me. Just you know, witnessing the changes—not necessarily in climate—that wasn't a deal. It's just basically from a personal, a social responsibility to take care of the environment. And you know, and it's not just from the oceans. It's not just from the trash or the oceans. It's you know the wildlife. You know, and as we have obviously, LA is this enormous urban sprawling city. You go to the zoo and you read about you know, a lot of animals that have either been, you know, completely displaced or the fact that they, you know, they just don't really exist or really aren't in sight. So it's like all these things when you're a kid, you're so fascinated by animals and you learn these unfortunate truths about what happens with urban development and with overpopulation. And so you mix that with kind of the unfortunate circumstances with wildlife populations. And then, you know, you could be in the ocean going for, a, you know, ha- surfing in the morning, and then you got a plastic bag around your foot and then you go on the beach and there's just trash littered everywhere and you go to the aquarium and, you you know, you see like, uh, you know, they have a whole kind of unit for animals that are being rehabilitated from getting caught in fishing nets, from getting caught in the, you know, the six pack holders. And so it's like, just became this bevy of things that we deal with, with our, you know, the California falls under with the irresponsibility just to take care of our, you know, our resources and our environment. And ultimately that's kind of what spurred me when I got older to start something like this. And, So I think that year I was, you know, I just kind of noticed that the amount of plastic that we use and my dad was a big environmental advocate. He was a big recycler when I was a kid and he had kind of made this makeshift recycling center (laughs) that had glass and plastic in the middle. And then he had like old newspapers and and the other one. And this was kind of all along the same lines as that when California was really starting to inundate, you know, the different recycling bins with the colors and stuff. So, you know, early on, you understand the importance of it. And then as i got older when i was in you know that year i saw the amount of plastic that we use and i was just like there's no way that this can be right that we can go through thousands of bottles uh, a week and it just basically just ends up in a landfill and it was
0: or uh, our oceans you
2: know, or the oceans and, but I, you know and i was in louisville kentucky at the time and so i mean i was just from a you know a sheer consumption standpoint but you know looking into it coincidentally i'd read an article in, I believe it was time magazine. And I think Michael Friedman wrote it and It was called the red, the white and the green and why America needs a green revolution. And it was a fascinating 20 page article. And that's kind of what spurred me. That's really what really got me fired up about, you know, the current state of the environment. And there was an ad in there for SIG water bottles and it had their particular ad was a bottle that said, I am not plastic and the stop global warming foundation was doing a big ad campaign with this particular bottle and i just kind of thought to myself you know what if we had those here like how much plastic could we cut down on you know if i got 50 of those bottles and everybody in here used the bottle for the rest of the season and sure enough they i sent a press inquiry out to them and they sent a bunch of bottles and We were able to take down our our plastic use by half because guys weren't taking, you know, three, four water bottles to the outfield for batting practice when it's just sweltering heat. You know, they had these durable, reusable water, refillable water bottles. And, you know, we had this, you know, we have huge Gatorade tanks with water. So, I mean, it's just, it's so easily refillable. They were aluminum. You throw them in your bag, you can travel with them. So I knew that that was something really cool that I personally could accomplish to do my part, but I didn't know that it would blow up and get attention from MLB and MLB.com and ESPN.com. And so that was the starting point from it. And then when I got called up, you know, as we mentioned earlier, I'd already played my first home game. I'd already seen the effect that it was having and the demand for change that, that people wanted because I had, you know, fan club signs that had the recycling symbol on it. So, And that's when I knew that I could use, I could leverage my platform as a professional athlete to speak out on this and to, to find other athletes that could use their platform to educate and, and encourage other people to make a change at home as well.
0: I think that's incredibly admirable and it's cool to hear it kind of come full circle from the kid that used to play in the oceans and, you know, see a, a plastic bottle or a Doritos wrapper washing up ashore and go on to, I don't know if you feel this at all, but as a pro athlete, I felt a certain sense of guilt with how many resources I was using, you know, and you mentioned that you're sitting in the dugout and seeing how many bottles and plastic parcels that people are going through, both in the dugout and on the field and and in the stands. And now you're coming full circle and giving back to this plan. And I think that's just so admirable. Is that really where your focus is, you know, now that you enter retirement?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's always going to be my focus, just, you know, the amount of work that we've done and that Jack and I did in the early years to, to make this something special. And, but I think, you know, I, I often think to, sometimes it was probably 10 years too early. Like everybody kind of had an idea that the environment was in trouble and this is something that, that really needed to be done. But now, you know, here we're in 2018 and I think, People are starting to grasp it a lot more. You're starting to see from a federal and a state standpoint where they're, you know, starting to ban straws, ban plastic bags and all this stuff we've been trying to get people to do for 10 years. But, you know, on the other side of that, I also there is a, that unfortunate factor where I think the, the research has started to come out and I think people have realized how much trouble we really are in. And that is what's kind of, you know, it's only when we're truly threatened by a grave dynamic that we really kind of go into overdrive with our ability to innovate new technologies that will, you know, help the longevity of the environment. So I think in some regards, we were probably 10 years too early. So, but now we have some great partners and the stuff that we're doing with Parley, probably for the oceans right now and what they've done uh, along with adidas as far as you know starting kind of what they call it uh materials revolution by utilizing this ocean plastic and you know making these sports jerseys i mean you, you've seen it every day especially in oregon and washington and those are two of the you know the foremost kind of you know innovative and progressive states as far as environmental policies there is so
0: well, I got a lot of respect for you, Chris, the way that you handled life as an athlete and now as as an activist. If people want to follow along, where can they follow you and how can they help out with Players for the Planet?
2: You can find me on Twitter at cdickerson underscore P-F-T-P as in Players for the Planet. You can also follow us on at Players for the Planet on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram, cdickerson24. And then, you know, just kind of keep your eyes out because I think this, we're really going to be doing some really cool stuff i don't know if you've seen the viral video that went that happened in the dominican with the plastic wave yeah that parlay released a couple of weeks ago so our big project we're gonna try to get you know some of the, the latin and the dominican players on board And i think that's going to be a real focus for us is to get these guys to use their platforms in the dominican to get out there and to make change because they dominican they rely heavily on you know, on tourism and i think it's going to be very hard for them to sustain that, when you have, you know, the coastline is looking like that. So, from a government and state standpoint, I think that they have some real, real work to do from with that infrastructure as far as how to to manage that waste. And so, I think that's our next big project. So, beyond the look of that. You can actually go to Parlay for the Oceans, and you can they have a crowdsourcing campaign right in our crowdfunding. The campaign right now to develop educational components and the Parley School for Oceans down there in Dominican, which hopefully we'll personally get to go down and and witness and help out with once the season is over with some of the Dominican athletes, which um, we're really excited about. And then, you know, we're kind of looking forward to developing this zero waste field, I think, and it's going to be the first of its kind with HOK, the same group that did the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which is the first ever LEED certified platinum stadium ever created. And, you know, I think we're having some really great progress on trying to move forward with what a zero waste looks like and how we can basically write the guidelines for what's possible for building youth sports facilities today.
0: I love it, man. you're a busy guy. I think that this is all great stuff and and you know we'll make sure that we leave uh, links to all of this in the in the show notes. But hey, man, I can't thank you enough for your time, uh, just taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. and again, congratulations on a fantastic career and big kudos to you and your partners for creating players for the planet. Thanks again for your time.
2: yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on. This is awesome. Thanks, Chris.
0: Thank you. A big thank you to everyone for joining us on that episode. If you want to find out more or listen to other episodes, go to rungum.com slash podcast. Also, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes or your preferred player. I'm Nick Simmons, and you've been listening to the Run the Day podcast. Until next time.